Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When Shawn Michaels walks out to the ring at Survivor Series 1997, he's by himself. Well, Triple H had summoned him from his dressing room. They filmed the whole thing with this minimal voiceover, a sort of verite style that underscored the realness and urgency of the night. Anyway, Shawn comes out, and Triple H and China and Rick Rude march with him to the entrance curtain. Shawn is cocky, but visibly nervous. But when he emerges into the arena by himself, Shawn is in full form. The crowd boos like crazy, and he drinks it in. This was before the days of the giant Titantron and the entrance ramp, so Sean is effectively walking through the crowd here, walking right into enemy territory. This is Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where Bret Hart is an eternal babyface, and Shawn Michaels will forever be a heel. If it weren't true on November 9th, 1997, it would be true forever after that day. Michaels is very arrogant but he is the greatest athlete in the history of the World Wrestling Federation, bar none. Brett enters, of course, to rapturous cheers, the conquering hero returning. As soon as Brett and Sean get together in the ring, the announced team of Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler start setting the stakes for the match with a surprising amount of verite of the room. All kinds of speculation regarding Bret Hart and his future. Everybody's got the answer. The match starts outside the ring. Well, it doesn't start technically because it never starts, but the fight starts in earnest on the ringside floor as the two guys punch and kick and ram each other's heads into things. They fight out into the crowd with a circle of WWE referees walling them off from the fans. It's just a down and dirty fight between two guys that hate each other's guts. The whole referee phalanx is out there, along with a small mob of WWE officials, and I use quotes around officials tentatively because it's a singularly weird sight to see on-screen authority figure Sergeant Slaughter standing side-by-side with real WWE authority figure Vince McMahon, trying to urge the action back into the ring so the match can officially start. What does McMahon think he's doing out there? At this point, Vince is angrily yelling at Brett to go back to the ring with Sean. And it's on camera, but it's unclear how serious he's being. Whether or not this is actually part of the story or if this is the boss, Vince McMahon, yelling at his employee, Brett. 
It seems like it was planned, but Vince wasn't really in the role of boss at this point yet, not on screen anyway. And the announcers are halfway perplexed about how to address his presence. He's been out at his owner on TV, sure, but this isn't really his role on TV. So at a minimum, his presence is an oddity. In real life, though, Vince is out there, at least in part, to eventually take ownership for what's about to happen. Brett and Sean eventually get back into the ring. Uh, Brett is walking down the aisle with his mouth wide open, presumably exhausted already from the brawl outside the ring. The match before the match is a sort of metaphor for the interpersonal brawl that got us to this point in history. They finally get into the ring, but the lawlessness continues unabated. Brett starts things off by choking Sean with the Quebec flag. Sean takes control and the match spills outside again, and Michaels puts Brett's face into the ring railing and drops him headfirst onto the steel stairs. He uses a Canadian flag on a pole as a weapon himself. A lot of flag play here. Eventually, we get into the leg lock stands of the match. Brett starts working on Sean's knee and legs and goes outside the ring to cinch in the figure four leg lock around the ring post. It's a really cool move Brett did a lot where he locks legs with a guy who's still in the ring and hangs himself upside down outside the ring with the post between their legs. It's an illegal move, you can't use the ring post and you can't be outside the ring, but the ref always gives you five seconds of leeway, so Brett used it a lot to set up his finishing move, the sharpshooter. The crowd goes nuts for it tonight. They're really behind their guy and really into seeing Sean take his medicine. When they get back into the ring, Brett locks in a standard figure four, but, and I used but here with some hesitation because what's about to happen always happens, but, Sean rolls over and reverses the hold. This is where things get really weird. Sean pulls referee Earl Hebner into the way of a heart charge and Hebner goes down. This is a pretty standard wrestling trope. The referee gets hurt and then the heel can make use of the unrefereed period to take control. Except this has already been a pretty loosely officiated match and all Sean really does here is rake Brett's eyes and push him down and put him in the sharpshooter, Brett's own finisher. Oh, you're kidding me. Marcus. Are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is! And then suddenly, Hebner is completely revived, a little overexcited, to be honest, and checking on Bret and wagging his hands in the most uncomfortable sort of fast-forward pantomime of what a referee is supposed to do kind of way. And then he calls for the bell. The match is over. I mean, the idea here is simple. Make it look like Bret submitted. Sean gets the title. The show ends, curtain, and Brett goes to WCW in December. But the cameras keep rolling. The show goes on. As soon as he hears the bell, Brett grabs Sean's ankle and rolls through the sharpshooter. It's a minor note here, but a really cool point, seeing how Brett actually knew the best way to negate his own signature move, even if he never really did it in the ring. But Brett goes to the ropes, with Sean sitting on the mat beneath him. Both of them are clearly upset. Brett spits, just hawks a big loogie, the kind of loogie that people like me who cannot spit on cue grew up oddly jealous of. He spits right in the face of Vince McMahon, who is standing conspicuously, deliberately, at ringside. You don't really see the loogie land. Vince is off camera when it goes flying, but you see where he's positioned right beforehand, and then you catch a glimpse of him wiping his face right afterward. 
Sean, who was in on this from the start, is feigning anger, just totally apoplectic. He rolls out of the ring, he snatches the belt from the timekeeper and stomps up the aisle and back to the locker room with Triple H and Jerry Briscoe acting as security on either side of him. Well, you talk about controversy. I'm making hot. This crowd is living. Michael with a sharpshooter has become the WWF champion. And Bret Hart is standing in disbelief. Ladies and gentlemen, good night from Montreal. And that's the end. That was the Montreal Screwjob. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Book of Wrestling. 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. So Triple H helps Sean to the back, where they came face-to-face with two gigantic twin wrestlers called Skull and Eight Ball. Yes, that's right. Uh, their real names are Ron and Don Harris, and they were, uh, they were at this point part of a biker faction called the Disciples of Apocalypse. There was no love loss between them and the members of DX. I remember the, the DOA, the Harris brothers, when Sean and I walked through the curtain, as it all went down, we walked through the curtain and we walked into the hallway and the two Harris brothers were standing at the end of the hallway with their arms folded, looking at us. And we were like, ah, oh, shit. And they, there was a period of time, I got along with them great, but there's a period of time where they didn't get along with Sean. And they looked at us and said, uh, we don't know what happened. It's not our business to know, but come with us. Nobody will touch you too. Like promise. And they walked with us to Vince's office and Harris brother on either side of me and Sean sat there up until I went outside in the hallway. After everyone got backstage, Vince, Loogie freshly wiped from his cheek, knew he had to face Brett. And this being the rough and tumble world of pro wrestling, it meant he would probably have to get punched in the mouth. And this is where another whole layer of weirdness comes into play. There was a documentary crew there that night, not a WWE films crew. They weren't really doing that kind of thing yet, but an honest-to-goodness independent film crew making the documentary Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows. It's a great movie and a quintessential pro wrestling expose. They basically had carte blanche to film anywhere they wanted to in the arena that night, and their version of events shaped history. WWE would quickly try to take ownership of the story, emphasis on story. But if the cameras hadn't been there... If WWE hadn't known that the truth would out, as they say, could history have gone differently? I think it's safe to say yes. Here's Bruce Pritchard. So there wasn't a lot of that at that time. They had been around enough around Brett. You kind of, they blended into the woodwork and you didn't notice him as much. But it was highly unusual. And, And for me, a little uncomfortable because I just... Being old school in this business, you know, your business is your business. You don't want somebody like I had to do reviews today and I don't want someone in here with a camera while I'm going over financials and I'm going over someone's personal review. But that's kind of what our world has become now. But at that time, we didn't live in that world. We didn't live in that reality world. Yeah, and it was uncomfortable. And obviously, you know, they they weren't in the locker room for the, the altercation after the fact, but they were backstage. The film crew was present backstage as Vince went into Brett's locker room, and they were there when he came stumbling out. They were there to capture the moment when WWE accidentally realized the power of reality TV. The moment where pro wrestling became real was being documented for posterity in real time. It is competitive. and. 
when you're in that kind of a physical physical business, sometimes the only thing to do is get it out of your system, go and and have a fight. So to me, you're asking me it, it uh, almost 60 years old to, to, to say, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, but to try to, you know, explain that in, in the world in which we live today, where that would be frowned upon. I think it's just how you grew up. And I grew up in, in an era that, that that's what you did to settle differences. And it was simple. And it was, there was a clear winner and a clear loser. He told us, look, when we come back, everybody go to, I think it was his office or whatever. You guys go there, wait. And then he said, and look, when I get back in, Brett's going to go there. When I get back in there, he's going to take a swing at me. And I'm going to let him. And I don't want anybody to do a damn thing. Yeah, you guys are not to do anything. You're not to flinch. You're not to move. If you don't want to be in there when I come in the office, go in the hallway. But no one is to do anything. He gets one free clean shot. And I was like, Jesus, all right. That's why when when he comes in, if he's seen the documentary, when he comes in the the room and he says, anybody that doesn't need to be here or doesn't want to be here can can walk out of the room. I'm like, I know where this is going and I don't want to stand here and watch him get punched in the face. So I stepped out in the hallway. Here's Jerry Briscoe. Vince and I went over every scenario. And, you know, whether it was him or me uh, that said, you know, we're going to have to face the guys. We're going to have to face the guys. We, we, you know, it, it's a given. I said, it might get physical. He said, what do you mean? I might have to take a hit. I said, yeah. And I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, uh, he said, I don't like it. And I said, but you got to do it. You can't fight back. You just got to stand there and take the damn thing. So we all get back to the dressing room. Once again, it's that group. And Slaughter comes in the dressing room with us. I went over to Bruce and I told Bruce, I said, man, there's going to be some issues. And I said, might get physical. So Bruce wears Rolex watches. So he took a Rolex off, stuffed it in his pocket, and he was with me. He said, I'm with you. It's good. So I, all of a sudden, we start walking out, and there was one thing during this whole episode that I, that I completely forgot to factor in, and probably the biggest wild card in the damn game, damn Shane McMahon. Shane is Vince's son. He's been a wrestler, a backstage figure, and at times over the years, he's not been involved with the company at all. At this point, though, in 1997, he was definitely involved. I did not think about Shane. You know, now we got to walk down, and his old man's already been spent on what he's. You know, he's he. You know, Shane. Everybody knows Shane. I mean, he's fit to be tied. You know, he's he's ready for a fight. So I told Sarge it was the That's biggest one. Sergeant Slaughter. At this point, he's known as Commissioner Slaughter. He's an on-screen authority figure and, of course, a famous ex-wrestler in his own right. You shadow Shane. And whatever happens, because Vance knew he was going to have to take a hit or might have to take a hit. I said, whatever happens, do not let him get physically involved. So now we, we make the walk down and Brett's family there and we're getting spit on, we're getting hollered at, we're getting kicked at. And I mean, it's, it's a hostile situation. So we go in. The Undertaker, legendary wrestler and equally legendary locker room enforcer, had cleared out the locker room of everybody but the major players, sort of stage managing this whole confrontation. Brett looked at Vince and told him he was going to take a shower and that Vince should leave before he got out. 
because if I, after I take a shower, I'm going to punch the hell out of you if you're still here. And so uh, we sat there. We waited for Brett to take the shower because we felt that was the only resolve that, that Brett could get that he would be reasonably pleased with himself with. And he walked over to Vince, and Vince was standing there, and Vince had his hands to his side, and basically his cheek up, and Brett took a punch at him, and boy, he, Brett, what a punch, he landed it, man. I mean, but you know, here, here's a 60-year-old defenseless man standing there with his chin out, and and sure he went down, because Brett's a big, big guy, and Brett put everything he had in that punch, all that anger and all that heat, and Ben, he nailed Vince and Vince's head went down and, and Vince went down. And there was a comical part of this thing, too, that I still get blamed for this day. We're in this hockey dressing room and they got those pallets where those skiers, you know, can go around. So I got a bad knee. So when Vince went down, a scrum went over him, you know, to protect him. He wasn't going to get a second shot in, in other words. You know, he got it the one shot. He got the freebie in. And that was all he was going to get in. So everybody goes into the scrum. So while I'm going to the scrum, Vince's ankles there, and I go to step, and I step on one of those open places on that on that pallet there, and I step on Vince's ankle, and I broke Vince's ankle by stepping on. But he twisted my knee where I I just recently got a knee replacement, which I reminded him it was his fault. And he said, "No, you're the one who broke my ankle." So that was the comical part of it there, you know. But at the time where adrenaline was flowing, neither one of them knew we were hurt until a couple of days later. So we picked Vince's horse advance up. And uh, Sarge did a job on Shane, but if, if it had been another punch, I'd hated to see what uh, would happen there. <laughs> it would have been pretty. And so we dusted ourselves up. We all got 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 you know, got our shit together and turned walked out the door, and it was the same scene, leaving, you know, the hatred and all that stuff. And then we get in a limousine, and I've told that part of it. Sorry, this is you're talking about comedy. So does Brett come out of the shower? Does this happen with Brett wearing a towel, or has Brett gotten dressed at this point? No, Brett, Brett's wearing a towel. I mean, I know this is a locker room. He slips on his underwear, but he still has a towel around his waist, you know. Comes over, and 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 he wasn't even 100% dry yet. And he's telling Vince, all right, I'm giving you a chance, you know. You can leave now, you know. And Vince, you know, we knew what we had to do, and Vince knew he had to take that punch for just satisfaction for everybody. And, then, you know, and in and, and a, and a demented way, Probably for Vince's well-being too. Mm-hmm. Probably made Vince feel good that he took that punch. I don't know. I mean, I'm no psychologist or anybody trying to pretend I'm one, but I wouldn't have doubted it. You know that Vince took that to make himself feel better. Here's Shawn Michaels' thoughts on the situation. He wanted to take as much of the heat as possible, and I, I've told people this for years. Again, he Vince is the one that. You know, said he's going to want to hit me. He's going to want to punch me, and I'm, I want you to let him. And he was talking to me and Hunter and Shane and uh, a, a number of other people at the time. And look, I like it. I just told him, I said, I, I appreciate that, but, you know, you're the boss. There's only, you know, they're not going to hate you. <laughs> they're going to hate me. Um, but that, and, he, and he said, look, I know, I, I understand that. And, and he said, there's nothing I can do about that. I, and he did. He wanted to shoulder as much as he could. And people were very dramatic in a locker room, people picking sides, people not wanting to show up at work, people not wanting to, you know, come in. And then other people that were like, you know, hey, you guys do what you had to do. And like, I'm glad Vince did it. Thank God he did it. It would have killed the company. 
no matter how much you realize you're going, you're already the most hated guy, but you're going to go to another level. You know, look, it ain't, it ain't a great place to be. Uh, but now it's going out there and, and making it happen. And I'll say this, it's again, not badge of honor stuff by any stress, but a lot of people say a lot of things in our line of work, but it's always should have, would have, could have, whatever, when it comes to whipping his ass, doing something, you know, lot, absolutely a ton of talk and, and probably all people that could do a lot of those things. Very few of them have followed through on them and actually done them. And then even fewer have done it on a pay-per-view in the guy's home country and then had to walk across the street to the hotel. <laughs> when we left, you know, like morons, we decided we stayed in the hotel as walking. You walked across an alleyway to the hotel and we walked over for the show. Right. So like, like morons now that the, that screw jobs happen in Montreal and, and me, Sean and China got to walk across that alleyway to get into our hotel. There's thousands of fans out there. I remember putting China in front and Sean and just trying to get behind him. And I'm like, don't stop for anything. Just keep going. And as I was pushing him up some stairs to go through the door, this big, huge woman coming at me and I saw her coming like pushing people out of the way. And at the last second, I thought, oh, shit, she's going to punch me right in the face. And sure enough, man, just boom, she creamed me right <laughs> right in the face. And, like, I came in, my eye was all red, and, like, we pushed through the door, and I'm like, oh, my God, man, damn it. <laughs> and Sean looked at me, he's like, what happened to you? And I'm like, that chick just punched me in the face. And, you know, and he's like, oh, my God, a woman punched you? Let's just go. But, you know, we went upstairs, and we were up all night just sitting there going, like, what in the hell just happened? Like this change, this changes everything, everything. Like, it, holy shit. When we left the building that night, I mean, you know, we had the, the, the walk down to the dressing room and the walk back from the dressing room, you know, uh, keeping vents on, on his feet and, and stuff like that. So then we got in the car and we left and that was an experience too, because Montreal fans are, they're like a lot of passionate fans, but these Montreal fans are really super passionate. And as we're leaving out, we were the last car to leave, of course. So all the fans are still lined up on that street. When you pull out, you got to make a left to go like two blocks down there to Marriott. Everybody say that people are there shoving the cars. I mean, it felt like we were going through a, a riot scene. <laughs> you know, we didn't know if the, the limo was going to turn up on the wheels and when it's get bashed out or anything. So we all got, of course, when we got to Marriott, there was security there to get us all in the room. And of course, it went without saying, but we were told, hey, don't don't even order room service tonight. You don't open your door, don't don't go out, don't go to the bar, don't do nothing. Sean got the WWE title. Brett got in his punch. Vince kept control of the narrative, the televised one anyway. Everything had gone according to plan, more or less. But still, it took a few days for the reality of the situation to settle in. Brett went public, making sure the world knew that he had slugged Vince in the locker room, and more importantly, that he was not supposed to lose. Which is a weird qualification to make in the pro wrestling world when you think about it. Yes, Brett got screwed because Vince lied to him about the ending and put him in position to have the match stolen from him. But the entire premise of pro wrestling is scripted endings of matches. And the main event of the Survivor Series 1997 was just another scripted ending. 
Now, if you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you might wonder, well, what's the difference? The only difference is that one of the wrestlers wasn't in on the finish. And that's a big deal. I mean, maybe for some wrestlers, this would just have been a gripe, a bitchy bar story. But for Brett, it was a moral affront. He wanted to protect his reputation in that loss as if it had been a real fight. And he wanted to make sure the world knew that Sean couldn't actually beat him up. I mean, maybe he was actually worried that the world would think that Sean could apply the sharpshooter on him with that kind of accuracy. Maybe he was protecting himself. Or maybe he was protecting his vision of what professional wrestling was. Maybe he was speaking out for the very notion of right winning out in the end. It took a few days, and and I think that that was more Brett's doing of coming out and saying that, look, I I didn't lose. I was screwed. And part of that was his feeling you know, to him, yeah, he, he was he was screwed and, and he felt wrong and had a hero worship type thing in, in Canada that Brett wanted to let everyone know, hey, I'm, I'm still your hero. So WWE decides to get ahead of the story. The Attitude Era was coming on full strength and there was no 1980s Hulk Hogan coming to the rescue. Vince had to stare the truth head on just like he'd done with Brett's punch. He was gonna have to take one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. The next night on Raw, the show started off with the new champ. Well, technically, with his representative, Rick Rude. What I'd like to have right now is... Rick Rude, not too popular here in Canada. Last night became the new World Wrestling Federation champion. The Heartbreak Kid... Sean Michaels, hit the music. 
Note the bullshit chants. This is still Canada, Ottawa to be exact. Sean had to face the music from the crowd. And one hoped he would have to explain himself. You know, I thought about coming out here and being politically correct. But since somebody else drew first blood, the heartbreak kid is now gonna unload on everybody. Now for all you people that are chanting, we want Brett, well I got news for ya. You can sing it, but the fact of the matter is, the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, beat Bret Hart in his home country, in his own finishing hold. And the heartbreak kid, is now the new World Wrestling Federation Champion. And if you thought that DX was hell to deal with before, you have seen absolutely nothing yet. Sean put himself over as the rightful champion, as someone who would never quit, but it lacked, I don't know, passion, conviction, certainly depth. I mean, for all the breaking of kayfabe that DX had done up to this point, there was relatively little pulling back the curtain in this promo. If you knew what to look for, sure. But on the DX scale, it was relatively thin gruel. Anyway, before long, Ken Shamrock comes out and then comes Commissioner Slaughter and it devolves into some pretty standard fair wrestling jibber-jabber. And that's pretty much the end of the Bret Hart talk. It's the next week that things get interesting. Vince McMahon sits as owner, as himself, for an interview with Jim Ross. Let's cut right to the chase. Seven days ago at the Survivor Series, did you or did you not screw Bret Hart? Some would say, I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you, I screwed him. There's a time-honored tradition in the wrestling business that when someone is leaving, that they show the right amount of respect to the WWF superstars in this case, who helped make you that superstar. You show the proper respect to the organization that helped you become who you are today. It's a time-honored tradition, and Bret Hart didn't want to honor that tradition. And that's something I would have never, ever expected from Bret, because he is known somewhat as a traditionalist in this business. It would have never crossed my mind that Bret would not have wanted to show the right amount of respect to the superstars who, make, who helped make him and the organization who helped make him what he is today. Nonetheless, that was Brett's decision. Brett screwed Brett. Watching it back, the oddest thing about what follows is how normal it seems. How straight. In order to own the story, to retake control, Vince decided to sit down and actually address the reality of what happened in Montreal, more or less. This is the moment. This is the moment where Vince McMahon 
famously begins to become Mr. McMahon, wrestling personality. But there's no gusto here. There's none of that McMahon growl that would terrorize on-screen opponents over the next decade or two. There's no real villainy, not in the pro wrestling sense anyway. But to those who knew Vince, well, he was born to be a heel. Here's Bruce Pritchard. To say that from 1987 when I met Vince and, and being around him, I was going, you would be the ultimate heel. <laughs> you know, I always used to tell him, you're, you're the biggest heel in the company. If we could just get that on camera. Vince only saw himself and looked at, he looked at the product as he felt the audience looked at the product. The only way the general audience, not the people that, that read insider gossip, the only way that they saw him was on television as a play-by-play announcer. So that's how Vince saw himself. He didn't see himself as Vince McMahon, the, the promoter, the owner, the, the head honcho that hires and fires everybody. Vince portrayed a play-by-play commentator on television. That's how the majority of the audience saw Vince McMahon. Here's Jerry Briscoe. And we would Vince, y'all be y'all be on TV. All right. I am on TV. I'm an announcer. Yeah, but we've been Pat and Bruce and JR and myself. We'd we'd all try to talk him in. But he he wanted no part of it. But I think, you know, being the, the entrepreneur that he is, once he got on TV and he did that, I didn't screw Brett. Brett screwed Brett. And he felt he felt it. He felt that he had something that needed to be on that TV, and he and he was on it. So, but, but did you think he should be on TV more at that point? Oh God, absolutely. He was the hottest heel we had, and why not lean into that? You know, and you would always talk about it, give the audience what they want. They want to boo you. They want to hate you. They don't like you. Feed into it, and and that became the character. Certainly the uh, bitterness of the loss at the Survivor Series could never be more prevalent. Uh, He stands in the ring and he he spits in your face. Uh, Shortly thereafter, he is destroying WWF television equipment. Were you prepared for what happened after the match? I was disappointed in Brett when he hit me. Very disappointed. Um, I sustained a concussion as a result of it with the vision problems to this day. I'll get over it. That that was the classic line. And that wasn't, you know, we didn't have an army of writers write that line. It was kind of a spontaneous, just a brilliant Vince McMahon quote, you know, and the coach, well, you know, keep in mind, you know, we'd, we'd all heard, you know, you guys, everywhere we went, I mean, you couldn't go in. You screwed Brett. You screwed Brett. I mean, that was a thing. You, you, know, you know, go walk out of parking. You screwed Brett. You screwed Brett. You could feel people saying it. Yeah, it was getting so. And all, but we, you know, we we were we were trying to justify things for for ourselves. And so we'd come up, you know, we'd, we'd be bullshitting, you know, screwed Brett. You know, he, he come down to who really screwed Brett and Vince. Brett screwed Brett. So during this course of the interview, it was just a spontaneous answer that, that Vince came out with, and it wow, what a quote, you know. 
It was one take and go. It was it was address the uh, questions that had been asked about this, address the situation, and give an explanation. And that's what he did. The ramifications of that were the audience then responded to Vince as, well, we hate you for that because Brett was our guy. And you screwed him. Brett screwed Brett. By God, no, you did. And they didn't see the business side of it because they were living in a world in which Brett was their hero, in which we had portrayed Brett as the end-all, be-all. And if I had been Brett, if I were writing the story, I can see Brett, after a one, two, three, simply saying, okay, to his opponent, you got the best of me. I want to congratulate you. I want to stick my hand out and congratulate you. And furthermore... I want everyone in the whole locker room to watch my match so that I can show for those who follow in my footsteps the way in a time-honored tradition this is to be done. To show every individual, every secretary, everyone in Titan Sports, the World Wrestling Federation, who counts on me to do the right thing, that I was there, that I was a superstar, maybe the greatest of ever, and I went out the way a true champion would go out. Here's Triple H's take. Doesn't Vince narrate that in a way of saying like time-honored tradition? He doesn't come right out and say, hey, he, he would refuse to do the job. But he, but he implies it, right? Like that's about as far out the open door as you can get. This being non-kayfabe stuff. And that's coming from Vince directly. But at that point in time, things were already much more open and and um exposed and stuff and i in in some manner i think it was you know whether planned not planned i don't know i have no sympathy for someone who was supposed to be a wrestling traditionalist not doing the right thing for the business that made him not doing the right thing for the fans and the performers and the organization who helped make him what he is today Brett made a very, very selfish decision. Brett's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. Brett screwed Brett. I have no sympathy whatsoever for Brett. And surprisingly, it was one of the biggest moments in, 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 in the company's history when Vince came out of the closet and said, you know, I own this company. I'm responsible for all this. For years, the on-screen character Vince McMahon had been content to stand in the shadows of guys like Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart to be the play-by-play -play announcer and not the on-screen owner, not who he actually was. But this night, Vince the character was playing Vince the owner, admitting to what he had done to Bret Hart and making the case for why he did what he did. And that was enough to make him the most hated man in professional wrestling. This is the kid that grew up idolizing Dr. Jerry Graham and whose dad wouldn't let him be a wrestler. This is the character who suffered on-screen indignation at the hands of wrestlers for decades. It's almost as if the villain was just sitting there waiting to get out. My opinion, it took Brett screwed Brett to bring that out. And that wasn't a character talk. That, that one was Vince. And that was Vince trying to address the situation as Vince McMahon, the owner, the promoter, uh, the head of Titan Sports, that he's going to address the situation. And it wasn't a character at all. That was Vince from the heart trying to explain to our audience, hey, 
We didn't do anything wrong here. Brett did. Brett didn't do what he should have done. We did what we needed to do to continue to stay in business, to continue to bring you this product. That was Vince the man. Now, by showing people that side of him and being able to, to be that, that blunt businessman that he, that he is in real life, that was a side that they had never seen as the commentator. So to a lot of people, it was like, oh, man, this is the heel character. That was more him than the play-by-play guy. The next week on Raw, Sean actually teased a rematch with Brett. He went on TV and said that they would fight that night and settle things once and for all. They teased it throughout the broadcast and showed Brett's limousine waiting outside. And when Brett's music finally hit, they brought out a little person dressed in a Bret Hart costume. You can actually see Brett watching this scene and wrestling with shadows. And you'd almost think that this was the low point, not the screw job, not losing in Canada, but watching this indignity happen on Raw from his living room at home. The week after that, Degeneration X inducted Brett's brother-in-law and former tag team partner Jim the Anvil Nightheart into DX, only to hit him in the balls and beat him up and taunt him and Brett by proxy. It was all pretty petty, lowbrow stuff. DX kind of stuff. But now, without Brett Hart there, the DX ethos was the controlling ethos of WWE. And it felt kind of mean. At the time, what made Vince's Brett Screwed Brett interview so powerful is that the situation was so toxic that owning it would make anyone a villain. But a funny thing happened in the years since. A lot of people have taken credit for the screw job. Vince Russo, the head writer for WWE at the time, says the screw job was all his idea. Jim Cornette, who was a creative force in WWE in those days too, and who certainly knows wrestling history better than most of the folks involved, says it was him that suggested a double cross first. Cornette and Russo both worked in the office in Stamford, and they certainly talked to Vince there in the days and weeks leading up to Montreal. Michaels and Triple H have also spoken openly about their roles in recent years, as has Hart. I mean, everybody talks about the screw job now. Lots of people have taken credit for what went down that night. That toxic story is now the stuff of legend, and everybody wants a piece of it. Those people weren't even in the know. You know, they weren't in the know. Vince had sworn to us not to talk to any about them, and they were all as shocked as anybody was. The, the people that knew, I mean, Shane might have known. Uh, I would have expected him to know because it was Shane, but uh, it was Jerry Briscoe, Vince, me, and Sean. It was a conversation on the phone where it was just that little group. Um, and there was a conversation and Sean has told this story as well. Like Vince just said, here's what, here's what Brett is saying he's willing to let happen. And, and this is what he's going to do. And uh, I'm not trying to take credit for anything, but I was the first one on the phone to go, fuck that. When people take credit for it, at the end of the day, the only person that could take credit for it is the guy that did it. And that's Vince. So the other person that kind of gets lost in that shuffle is the guy that agreed to do it and the guy that was in the ring, and that was Sean. One thing I do know, a fact, the guy that did it was me. I saw me. You can see it on video. So I'm the, I'm the dude that did it. Um, I take full responsibility for that. Um, Hunter's part was during the conversation, he did say, Again, 
if he's not going to do business, maybe we should do it for him. Um, you know, and that is what he said. And, you know, and Vince said, look, if it comes to that, you know, I'll let you know. I guess I'll say I appreciate the fact that now everybody wants to be in on it. <laughs> so I will say this. Vince Russo and Jim Cornette, at that time, they were up in Stanford. All right. I never once communicated with any of them. Hunter never once communicated with any of them. I don't know if you'd have to ask Vince whether he had though he had us on a call that was a conference call that any, anyone could hear and those guys heard it, um, or if he shared it with them up there. They were writers at the time. I don't know what it is. I to this day work for this company for thirty five years, but the days I'm not in Stanford, I don't know what they talk about in Stanford. And I've never asked to know everything under the sun. So, but all I know is that no one knew that day. And if all these other people knew, it is the first time in the wrestling business ever that a secret has remained a secret until after it was done. I know there's been all kinds of uh, people taking credit. Well, you know, I suggested this or I suggested that, you know. You know, and they all could have. I mean, I'm not saying nobody didn't because I wasn't in all ever meeting, you know, and none of us were. So, you know, it, it's just you were taking the other people's words and they've done nothing to me to discredit themselves. The Montreal screw job is maybe the most important moment in WWE history because it's the one that has the least to do with pro wrestling. Stone Cold Steve Austin would reap the benefits of feuding with the heel Mr. McMahon character. And the line about him was always that people loved him because they all secretly wished they could flip off their bosses and punch him in the face. Well, Bret Hart had gotten screwed by his boss on the way out the door, embarrassed and gossiped about and replaced. That's a real average employer-employee relationship that people can sympathize with. Pro wrestling is often a powerful window into our cultural id, the stories it tells, the villains it promotes, but any moment that pro wrestling goes off the script is inherently the most interesting part of the show. The real life fights, the in-ring shoots, the off-script shenanigans, Montreal had all of that. And perhaps most improbable of all, it still told a coherent story. They build the match as being 18 months in the making, and of course, that meant the months of on-screen feuding leading up to the event. But more importantly, it referenced the endless stories of backstage angst that had led to the Survivor Series and winked at the negotiations that led to the match occurring at all. Without knowing the ending, Brett had accidentally booked the perfect match. The outside brawl that started things off gave legitimacy to their implied hatred for one another. And maybe accidentally, it gave the opportunity for Mr. McMahon to come to the ring. The thing I'll always remember about the Montreal Screwjob are the faces. Sean's cartoonish anger and shock, Brett's look of venomous exhaustion, and McMahon's stoic awkwardness. There was a hint of fear in Vince's face, certainly anxiety at the risk he knew he was taking and the situation he had put himself in. The situation was avoidable on many counts, there were other ways out of the predicament they were in, but setting aside all the other things they could have done. At the end of the day, this is a story about Bret Hart, pro wrestling's truest believer, and Vince McMahon, in many ways its antithesis, who had found religion at the prospect of Bret's departure. 
There was only one right way for Brett to go out, Vince said, on his back. It just so happened to be the way that Vince wanted it to go. And the screw job, well, let's be honest, it wasn't that crazy an idea. Doing anything in the ring without the knowledge of one of the competitors is incredibly unusual, sure, but it's possible that all the people who take credit for coming up with the idea of the screw job are right, if for no other reason than because, well, it's kind of obvious when you think about it. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, once again, thanks for listening, and you thought, why not just take the belt off of Brett? You can take your victory lap here. Last episode, I talked about Chief Don Eagle, but there's one other screw job worth mentioning here, one that's a little bit more pertinent, the Wendy Richter screw job. On November 25th, 1985, at Madison Square Garden, WWE Women's Champion Wendy Richter went into the ring to face the Spider, often called the Spider Lady in various accounts, who's a masked villain wrestler. Despite the mask, it was clear that this Spider was not the normal Spider. This wasn't the normal person under the mask. No, it was Richter's longtime rival, the fabulous Moolah, under the mask. Great wrestling angle, right? Except this wasn't technically part of the story. Out of nowhere, the spider got a small package pin, and even though Richter kicked out after a one and a half count, the referee quickly slapped the mat three times. Then the bell rang, and commentator Gorilla Monsoon said, what was that, referee made a three count? Appears the referee has made a three count. It's so weird to watch. Wendy Richter keeps fighting, and she unmasked Moolah for the world to see, but the decision stood. Moolah was the new women's champion, and Richter, who had reportedly been agitating for a new contract from Vince McMahon, quit on the spot. That was real. Vince McMahon and WWE took Richter's championship away in the middle of the ring and made it look like part of the show. WWE aired that match on TV and home video as if it was standard wrestling content, which is to say staged, which it was, just a different way than we're used to seeing it. In wrestling, it's always hard to delineate the truth from the facade. That's the whole point which is why these real stories get retold as if they're wrestling stories. That's our vocabulary. And it's why it's hard to disentangle Brett losing in Montreal from, say, Hulk Hogan getting screwed out of his title against Andre the Giant on the main event in February 1988. See, in that match, a huge match on NBC, Andre the Giant got the win against Hogan, even though Hogan's shoulders were clearly off the mat. The referee was the culprit. It, it was supposed to be Dave Hebner, but he was replaced by Dave's quote-unquote evil twin. A referee paid off by the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase to steal the win for Andre. The evil referee in this story? Yep, Earl Hebner. See, this was part of a storyline, a gimmick to get the belt off of Hulk Hogan so he could go film a movie and to set up a championship tournament for WrestleMania. Also, both Earl and Dave were paid $2,500 bonuses for working this angle. So does that mean there's some reality here? I don't know. But if you're just a casual wrestling fan, what's the difference? Why does the Montreal screw job matter? Sean and his buddies in the clique, see episode one, had been pressing Vince to change the way the business worked by acknowledging reality and leaving the hackneyed good versus evil stuff behind. They were right, and Montreal bizarrely proved it. The old tropes were worthless now. In his reaction to the screw job, Brett is implicitly realizing that Sean was right. Nobody cares about good versus evil played out in a ring. Nobody wants the old way of doing things in pro wrestling. Cartoon heroes versus cartoon villains. 
Or even, you know, the homegrown good guy versus evil interloper match. If that was kind of the rubric of this match, well, the right man won. The fights in the wrestling ring may be staged and will always have faces and heels, but the good and evil, they have to be based in reality. This is not the era of evil foreigners. Our villains, by and large, are now determined personally by who these guys are and what they do. Reality leads the way, and wrestling follows along. This is what Sean wanted. And Vince didn't see it until he was cornered. The most stinging line in Brett's interview is not, Brett screwed Brett. It's the kicker. Brett forgot he was in the sports entertainment business, forgot where he came from. The pro wrestling true believer had lost the script, had taken himself, his career, his country, his reputation, more seriously than the show. It's true, but it's also deeply understandable. And it wasn't just Brett. That night in Montreal, Vince forgot it too. The whole show forgot it was in the pro wrestling business. That's what made it so magical. But was it actually Bret Hart's fault? So is it fair to say that Brett screwed Brett? I think in Vince's, Vince's perception was it was Brett's fault. And that he didn't, look, I can tell you for a fact, Vince did not want to do that. Vince did not want to have to go to those lengths at all and tried everything within his power not to have to go there. And when his hand was forced, um, I know for a fact he felt horrible about it. So to him, it was like, damn it, I, he didn't like to have to do that. And that's where the he came so you know almost angrily defensive about it because to him it was like this shouldn't have happened never should have gotten to this place and the feeling was at that point come on man you know he felt that brett should have done business and that brett brought it on oh i think it's the greatest quote in the world i think brett's attitude and ego screwed brett Jerry Briscoe has a big role in this story, and particularly in this retelling of it. Briscoe is now 75 years old and, like most wrestling notables, has a podcast of his own. His hair is longer, and his drawl, if possible, is thicker. It may be the accent, and I can say this because I'm a Southerner, that lends a certain Forrest Gumpiness to his account. He was there, an integral part of the action, but at the same time, sort of outside of it. For all the people that had to keep secrets surrounding the Montreal screw job, I want to say Briscoe's burden was the heaviest. He was great, great friends with all of the most important people in the company who were kept in the dark. Jim Ross, Pat Patterson, and Bruce Pritchard. People who deserved to know, but were left out to make sure the conspiracy worked. Pro wrestling is a business built on secrets, and for years those guys had been in on the secrets. They'd been in the know, and suddenly, one night in Montreal, they were on the outside, and they were pissed. Well, I, they didn't know. They didn't know how I knew. I mean, you know, we're in a car, and it's like, we've all been in these cars. There's four guys in the car. We just had one of the most uh, life-changing, business-changing episode that ever went down in our entire career, and there's a lot of years sitting in that car go down the night before and we're all in that car i'm sitting there and i'm shaking like a leaf because i'm the only one in the damn car that knows what's going on and i know that but they don't know that 
So all of a sudden, Pat's sitting there driving. And damn, what happened? I didn't know nothing. Everybody's saying, I, I, I know nothing. You know, and, uh, and it goes over to Jay. He looks at Jay. I know nothing, Bruce. I know nothing either. And now it's my turn. And I'm silent. And I'm silent. All of a sudden, after what seemed like an eternity of silence, which is probably about 10 seconds, all the eyeballs turn them. Briscoe, did you know so? And I just kind of broke down. And I said, yeah, I knew I knew everything. <laughs> and, I, and all I'm getting cussed out for two and a half hours. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't I? Uh, not if you needed to know. What do you mean? I mean, and I heard why they needed to know. You know and, and, and then they went silence again for another two and a half hours until we was getting to the building there in Ottawa. It was a miserable road trip. One of the most, you're in a, you're in a car with three of the most entertaining guys I ever traveled with in my life. And it was like, it was like a, a morgue inside that damn car to a huddle. That's what we were talking about until we hit the silent period again. We talked about all that. And then, then, then we kind of just, you know, that, that mind soaking thing where you think about, you know, what everybody was saying and you just kind of go in, in a, in a focused concentration type mode and you, you're absorbing all the all the info, and, and that, that's another reason. Okay, what are we going to do? You know, what happens next? You know, or who? How am I going to tell this? And like I said, I'm a traditionalist. You know, my brother believes in. He was alive at the time. He believed in business. You know, and uh, and and all my old timer friends. You know, how am I going to face these guys and tell them? So I called Jack. What the hell did you do, Joe? And at the end of it, you know, he said, I said, Jack, I need, I need you to tell me I did wrong or, you know, I did what I should have done. And he said, well, you took care of business and that's what you should have done. Then I felt like a, a load lifted off of me. You know, you still had that guilt feeling, you know, whether you did the right thing or not. And I still to this day believe now that we did the right thing. I mean, it's not something that we do every week in our business to double cross a world champion. <laughs> I wrote and recorded this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Finnessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian H. Walters, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Craig the Animal Gaines and fact-checking by Eduardo the Strangler Ocampo Garcia and Rockin' Juliana Ress. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Mask Man. Thanks for listening.